Hello everyone, welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Helen. And I'm Riley. And today we're covering the Port Arthur Massacre. It's our first time talking about a mass shooting, and it's probably going to be one of very few times we do, because not a lot of them happen in Australia and New Zealand. Probably one here and one there, to be honest. Yeah. In terms of like modern shootings? Yeah, in modern history. Yeah. At Port Arthur, there was 35 deaths, which makes it the largest mass shooting in modern Australia committed by a single perpetrator. The perpetrator in this case today is a man named Martin Bryant. So let's start off with some background on him. Martin was an unassuming, not-so-bright kid living in Tasmania. He was born on May 7th, 1967, and was described as an annoying or different child by his parents. Good start. Yeah, that's a bit... If your parents are saying that. Yeah, it's a bit over for you. And teachers described him as being distant from reality, unemotional and disruptive. At school, he was both a victim and a perpetrator of bullying, and was eventually suspended from Newtown Primary School in 1977. So when he was 10. 10 years old. Yep. His behaviour had improved when he returned the following year, but when he persisted in his teasing of the younger students, he was transferred to the special education unit of a local high school in 1980, where both his academics and behaviour continued to deteriorate. He was often aggressive towards other people, He had pulled the snorkel from another boy while diving and had once cut down trees on a neighbour's property. He was also aggressive towards animals, with psychological assessments from his childhood revealing a history of torturing animals. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Not all animal abusers are murderers, but all murderers are animal abusers. Mm. It's just how it is. It's Murphy's Law. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Martin's unusual and aggressive behaviour prevented him from gaining employment after school, and when he was assessed for the disability pension in 1983, his assessment indicated that he potentially had an intellectual disability as well as a mental illness. It said, quote, Cannot read or write, does a bit of gardening and watches TV. Only his parents' efforts prevent further deterioration. Could be schizophrenic and parents face a bleak future with him. Bit of a roast. That's so harsh. Maybe it's just indicative of 1983. Approach to mental health. Yeah. That's true. His mental health was assessed at other points in his life, including after the events of Port Arthur, where he was assessed as being borderline mentally disabled. That's a quote. Borderline mentally disabled. Mm. Is that even a concept? I don't know. Like you're nearly mentally disabled. I'm not. Just not quite there. Yeah, I don't really know. I've, I think maybe this was a combination of like like attitudes towards mental illness and mental disability and the fact that I feel like some of these medical professionals maybe just didn't give a shit about him. He also had an IQ of 66, which is equivalent to an 11-year-old. During the trial, he was assessed by two psychiatrists, one for the state, who said that he, quote, could be regarded as having shown a mixture of conduct disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity, and a condition known as Asperger's Syndrome. The other, for Martin's legal counsel, concluded that while he was socially and intellectually impaired, he didn't have signs of schizophrenia or a mood disorder. They said, quote, Though Mr. Bryant was clearly a distressed and disturbed young man, he was not mentally ill. While incarcerated, he was officially diagnosed with Asperger's. So, they changed their mind. Yeah, another... I guess time passed and a different doctor. Right. Yeah. These mental impairments hampered Martin's social life as a young adult, and he was notorious for being a loner with very few friends. That is, until he met Helen Harvey. When he was 19, Martin met 54-year-old Helen, who was an heiress to her mother's lottery fortune. Helen, who lived with her ageing mother at their mansion at 30 Clare Street, Newtown, befriended Martin, who visited regularly to help with upkeep of the neglected house. There were 14 dogs in the house and 40 cats kept in the garage, which Martin fed. I think these Helen and her mother were like hoarders. Why do you say that? I just get the vibe that like their house was very messy and they had a lot of stuff. 
and a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. So maybe they weren't hoarders, but they had a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's what a hoarder is, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. I think hoarders like, can't let go of things. Oh, well, they can't let go of any of these goddamn cats. Clearly, yeah. I guess I'm also intrigued about the nature of Martin and Helen's relationship. Like, was it just fair enough? pure companionship? Yeah. Was it romantic? Was Helen... Was it physical? First of all, I can't believe this is the first case with one of our names in the case. A Helen, I know. What episode are we? 20... 23. 23? Anyway. Yeah, a bit introspective. Maybe I can find myself in this episode. But was Helen, like, a lonely woman? She didn't have a partner. I don't think so. You know what I have this image in my mind? Helen, and she has this, like, extravagant hair and, like, all this jewellery, and she romps around all day in a big fluffy, like, a big feathery robe, like one of those satin feather robes. Oh, yeah. And she just... She walks five dogs at a time. Yeah. And they're all, like, Pomeranians or something. (laughs) But I bet it definitely wasn't that dramatic. Like, uh, every time I get an image in my head on this podcast, it's so theatrical. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it wasn't like that. I bet it was very unglamorous. He was 19. I know. But at this stage, he's just helping out with the house. That was his job then. Work? I don't think he got paid. Oh. Maybe he did. Maybe he, you know. Oh. Anyway, look, we can't speculate. What? That's all we do. (laughs) What do you mean we can't speculate? Oh, get it together, Reese. We've forgotten who we are. Of course we can speculate. Yeah, we are speculating whether... Well, I think it's a fair enough thing to wonder if she was alone and he was going over to her place all the time to look after the animals seemingly without being paid, maybe. That's true. Well, I mean, let's look a little bit further into their yeah, relationship. Let's do it. Three years later, in June 1990... The Harvey's house was reported to health authorities because it was so run down. Helen and her mother were both in urgent need of medical treatment and were taken to hospital. Just weeks later, Helen's mother passed away, meaning Helen inherited everything. A clean-up order was placed on the mansion, and this is why Martin moved in with Helen to assist with the clean-up. Right. You moved in to help with the clean-up. What is a clean-up order? Um... In order to clean up? Yeah, because it's a health hazard for your neighbours. Oh, it's gotten that, that bad? Yeah. Yep. True. Okay. Yeah, things are bad. The dogs are shitting everywhere. Well, you don't have to move in to clean up. That's true. Yeah, exactly. You just clean up. You could then. just go home, but no. Not our he boy. He didn't do that. No. He didn't do that. No. Together, they started blowing the money, spending every day lunching at a local restaurant and shopping in the afternoons. They purchased 30 new cars over the span of three years. During the same time, Martin was reassessed for his pension, and attached to the paperwork was a note from the assessment saying, quote, Father protects him from any occasion which might upset him as he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control. Bit foreshadowing. Yeah, plus his life sounds fine at the moment. Yeah, you're right. He's got a friend. They're just lunching every day? Living it up. In 1991, they moved out of the mansion when they could no longer keep the animals there and moved to a 72-acre farm called Taurusville. Interesting to note, Martin was a Taurus. So am I. And so is Helen. This Helen. Me Helen. I Helen. Yeah. Am a Taurus. You know who gets along? Taurus and Taurus. That's true. Not saying I'd get along with Martin. (laughs) Or would I? Stars say so. Maybe you'd find something to talk about. Maybe I should go to Taurusville. Maybe. Find me a nice Taurus man. Taurusville. Sounds like a good... I'd go there. <laughs> Everyone wants to go to Taurusville. <laughs> oh, stop it. You know where no one wants to go? Gemini land. Is the land what you would assign to the We've got a... Yeah. I'd call it... We've got a one-star on TripAdvisor. <laughs> what would you call it? I'd call it... Gemini City. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> Bit gross, you know? Let's head to Gemini City. Yeah, but like full of... Like, yeah, good nuance gross. and opportunity. Yeah, that's like like Vegas. <laughs> you know, a bit gross, but you want to go. <laughs> yeah, that is not so Taurusville is like grass and animals, and then there's Gemini City, where you yeah. might get mugged, but you'll like it. <laughs> and you might have a really good time. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, back from astrology, sorry. 
Yeah. A little sidestep. Mm. I can't help myself. Neither. Neighbours recall that Martin would carry an air gun and fire it at tourists who stopped to buy apples at the roadside stall and would roam the surrounding properties late at night, shooting at the dogs if they barked at him. The neighbours say that despite Martin's attempts to befriend them, they avoided him at all costs. He's actually out there, like, shooting people with air guns, and but still trying to be friends with the neighbours. That's not it. That's not what you should do. No. You know? No, he definitely wasn't going the right way about it. The intention was there. The method was not pulled off. Yeah. The following year, in 1992... Helen was killed in a car accident when her car veered onto the wrong side of the road and collided into oncoming traffic. Martin was also in the car and sustained severe neck and back injuries, which saw him spend seven months in hospital. He was investigated briefly as having a role in the accident because he had a habit of grabbing the wheel while other people were driving. Helen had already had three car accidents as a result of this, which is maybe why they kept buying all those new cars. I mean, they bought 30. That's true. The investigation was dropped, and Martin was named the sole beneficiary of Helen's estate and came into possession of her assets of more than $550,000. After this, Martin was placed on a guardianship order at his mother's request, as she claimed that he only had, quote, the vaguest notions of financial matters. A guardianship order is basically where um, these people called state trustees, they come and they... You give them all your money, and they just give you what you need. Like Britney Spears. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Right. But but it's like not not his, not not the, not, not the his parent. dad. Yeah, it's the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people, a lot of people with disabilities are on guardianship orders. It's one of those things where like it probably is somewhat of a necessary evil almost because mm. without like burdening family members more maybe with having to like look after all this money there's not really a better option but like the state does take a portion of the income Mm -hmm. like it takes a bit of like it skims a bit off the top and sometimes like it is really people can have their money mismanaged and they can like run out yeah and then they're stuck oh yeah like someone else will put them into like that position yeah like sometimes if their account isn't getting watched closely enough by the trustees it can just like sort of diminish and then there's no income coming in and these people just run out of money but like yeah that yeah what are you gonna do i don't have a better suggestion so yeah. but there is yeah there is problems with them what about an ai we should invite invent an ai to do this shit maybe we should like an what's like unbiased mm. ai who doesn't need to be paid for their work it's an ai you're right it just does the numbers y'all Helen's back at it again. I've always got these ideas that I, maybe I should go work in government. Yeah, you need to start working in policy or something. Go work for like a think tank or whatever they're called. And then the AI can like chat to them as well. That's you know? true. Companionship, teach them about financial matters. Yeah. Wow. I'm not going to say too much. I'm going to go patent this first. <laughs> After Helen's death, Martin's father, Maurice, looked after the Taurusville farm while Martin was in hospital. But things weren't going well for Maurice. Maurice had been prescribed antidepressants and had secretly put his bank account and utilities into his wife's name. What this might be implying is he might have been looking to... He might have been suicidal. Yeah. Maurice. Two months after this, a raids officer came to the farm looking for Maurice, but just found a note pinned to the front door which said, Call the police. So he did. So police do turn up and they search the property, but were unable to locate him. Police divers were called to search all four dams on the property, and two days later, on August 16th, Maurice's body was located in the dam closest to the farmhouse, with a diving belt around his neck. His death was ruled as a suicide, and Martin inherited his father's superannuation fund, which was valued at 250 k So within two months... Martin had lost his main companion and his father. But he has gained 750k. 800. Oh my god, yeah, maths. He, yeah. She had 550k, that's right. Some of it is tied up in assets, but some of it oh, is yeah. just cash, baby. His net worth has gone up significantly. Yeah. And Martin sold the Taurusville property and moved back into the Hobart mansion. So, Helen's place. Helen's old place. 
At this point, he drastically changed his appearance. Which I guess is great. But we all know that an outward reinvention is often indicative of something going on under the surface. So what what was the change here? Well, we have outlined what he changes it to. Like his look? Yeah. But what did he look like before this? I think he just looked pretty ordinary. He apparently very often wore like white um overalls like a like a a boiler suit or whatever they're called what you the know? fuck like a big one piece yeah i know that's weird yeah he looked like a painter yeah what but he wasn't yeah that was his like look that was his style bold. it's really bold yeah <laughs> well from that to now his outfits included Grey linen and electric blue suits, cravats. What, like suspenders? No, cravats are like, you know... Um, oh, Les Mis. Like the folded yeah, up scarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that is a look. I was going to say Matt Preston on MasterChef, but yeah, Les Mis. Yeah, okay. Lizard skin shoes, Panama hats. Panama hats. Panama hats. Yeah. The fuck are those? Um, Like a... Picture like a Cuban gangster. Broad, flat brim... Little pointed... Picture oh. Michael Jackson in Smooth Criminal. Oh, like a fedora. Yeah, but with a, w- wider, a wider brim. Right. Flared trousers and ruffled shirts. Harry Styles looking ass. Yeah, I guess so. This is huge Harry Styles energy. He often carried a briefcase and told anyone who would listen about his well-paying career, which he didn't have. He didn't have a well-paying career. Mm-mm. The owner of the restaurant he often went to recalled, quote, it was horrible. Everyone was laughing at him, even the customers. I really felt suddenly quite sorry for him. I realised this guy didn't have any friends. I guess if you're dressing like that in Tasmania in the 90s, you're going to stand out. Mm-hmm. This ain't Los Angeles, you know? You know what I say? If you aren't getting weird looks when you're walking down the street, your outfit's not good enough. But maybe this was a bit too much. You're not taking enough risks with your outfit if you're not getting some... Weird, like, looks from the old people down the street. Oh, like it's a good thing to get some weird yeah, looks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To stand out a bit, but this might have been a bit too much. Yeah, well, so we live in Brunswick. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. right. You can wear whatever you want here. <laughs> yeah, we are not even, we're not challenging anything else to. No. There are way more bold looks out there. But yeah, it seems like this guy would have been uh, an outlier mm. on a data pump graph, you know, of Definitely. how people dressed. With Helen and his father gone, he became increasingly lonely, and in the two years following, he went on 14 overseas trips and had a three-page domestic travel history. He liked the flights because he could speak to the people he sat next to, but hated the destinations as people would avoid him there, just like they did at home. This guy should have come to Brunswick. And that look would have fit right in. Yeah. But maybe it was more like his social interaction stuff. But also, everyone avoids tourists. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like if, I feel like, well, I haven't traveled that much, but whenever I am somewhere, the only people that talk to me are like, they want me to buy something. Yeah. Which is like, that's fine. Yeah. Locals don't just like, oh, maybe in the nineties they did. Maybe they did. Not now. If someone comes up to me and they're like, oh, can you, where's this place? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, it's there. And then I walk off. (laughs) Girl. Well, yeah. You don't really stand around. You're not like, oh, where are you from? Where are you going? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, times might have been different back then. It does sound like he didn't have much support. No, that's true. He didn't have much support. Which probably should have been available to him. Or some kind of system. Especially after Helen and his father both died. Yeah. And then he's just left with no one. Yeah. Yeah. In 1995, this lonely existence came to a head and Martin became suicidal. He stated, quote, I just felt more people were against me. When I tried to be friendly towards them, they just walked away. His alcohol consumption increased beyond a social amount, and it's estimated that his daily intake was half a bottle of Sambuca, a bottle of Bailey's, port wine, and other sweet drinks. Good God. I like sweet alcohol, but that sounds disgusting. I want to throw up just thinking about oh, that. Like, in one day. Bailey, Bailey's followed up with some port? Did he have no taste buds? Even a... Even a bottle of Bailey's, how many stands are like like seven or eight? Right, yeah, it's very sizable. Yeah, and 
You'd feel so sick. Bailey's is fun for like one glass. Yeah. But then like all that dairy and the alcohol. Yeah. It always makes me feel so sick. God, maybe this is a testament to how over it he was. Maybe. He didn't even care that he was such a horrible selection of alcohols. Yeah. While Martin had been contemplating suicide for around 12 months, his plans changed in March 1996 following the Dumblain massacre in the UK where Thomas Hamilton killed 16 students and their teacher, injured 15 others, and then killed himself. According to Martin's psychiatrist, Martin followed the Dumblain story very closely, and the media's portrayal of the shooter changed everything for him. This, combined with the fact that he told a neighbour, I'll do something that will make everyone remember me, gives us a pretty good indication that it was his unquenchable desire for attention that caused him to go on the deadly rampage a month later, in April 1996. On the 28th of April 1996, Martin woke up at 6am, which was unusual for a man with no commitments. His girlfriend left the house two hours later, and Martin left almost two hours after that, at 9.47am. So he has this girlfriend. Can't be that lonely. Yeah. Right? Well, I I guess you can be be pretty... I guess so. You can be lonely and not alone. Wow. Yeah. And he has been, um, he was suicidal for a year before this point. That's true. Martin travelled for two hours in a yellow Volvo 244 from Hobart to the coastal town of Lulworth in the north of Tasmania, where he stopped at the Seascape guest accommodation. Despite not having a driver's licence, Martin was driving alone. The reason he didn't have a licence was because he couldn't sit the test. His mental impairment had prohibited him from sitting the test. Yeah. Not pro- not like legally. He yeah. just couldn't mentally do it. Oh, so he was allowed to. He could have, but he couldn't like pass it. I see. Yeah. Martin's father had wanted to purchase the Seascape accommodation, but it was purchased by Nolene and David Martin before he could get the finances in order. That's also a tale as old as time. Yeah. Also, their last name is actually Martin. Yeah. So that might get confusing, but we'll do our best. Yeah. Martin's father often complained about the double dealing that was done in purchasing the property and how not getting the property had changed the family dynamic. Martin believed that Nolene and David had brought the property in order to hurt his family and that this event led to his father's depression and eventual suicide. Martin went inside the Seascape property and fired several shots, one of which killed Nolene. He then gagged and stabbed David Martin. Immediately after, a couple arrived at Seascape. Martin met them outside and told them that they couldn't look around because his parents were away and his girlfriend was inside. They described him as being quite rude and making them feel uncomfortable. Martin took the keys to Seascape and locked the doors. He drove towards the Port Arthur historical site, stopping by a car which had pulled over to talk to two people there. He suggested they come to the Port Arthur cafe for some coffee later. Port Arthur was like a really early prison right? that we had in Tasmania. Yeah. It was like one of the first like um, maximum security prisons. Checks out. Yeah. Tasmania would be where you would go Yeah, to build it. Martin then stopped by another property, which was owned by Norlene and David. This is where he saw a man called Roger Lana, who he had known for around 15 years. He made some very interesting comments to Roger. Martin said he had been surfing earlier that day and that he had brought a property, and was now looking to buy some cattle from Roger. Martin also made comments about buying Nolene and David's other place next door. He asked if Roger's wife Marion was home and asked if he could see her. Roger said that she was home and he could see her, but that he would come also. Martin then responded that he might go to Nubina first, and that he was going to return in the afternoon. Martin then left Roger's property and continued towards Port Arthur. What a weird conversation. Yeah, for some reason he wanted to see the wife alone. Some weird thing about the cattle yeah. and the and buying the property. Oh. Such a projection. That sounds like one of those combos that just make me want to go back to bed after yeah. you talk to someone like that. You're like, why did I even get up? Yeah. Yeah. At 1.10pm, he entered the site and parked near the Broad Arrow Cafe. Which was the cafe at Port Arthur. Yeah. The Port Arthur Cafe. But it's the Broad Arrow Cafe. That's its, yeah, its official name. It, yeah. But he was asked to move by the security officer because he was parked in the area reserved for camper vans. He moved to another area and then left his car, carrying a duffel bag and a video camera. The security guard noticed this but didn't think it was unusual. 
and he's at a historical site, so video camera makes sense. Duffel bag. Yeah. Uh, camper vans, maybe just maybe, maybe yeah. He went to the cafe, purchased a meal, and ate it on the deck outside. He attempted to make conversation with other patrons, largely about the racial demographic at the site that day. He apparently looked nervous and regularly looked back to the cafe and the car park. I guess it was, like, full of tourists, so, you know. He was saying that there wasn't that many white people there. Yeah. And that there also wasn't as many Japanese people as there normally is. Right. Which I don't... Was he there often? Like, <laughs> yeah. interesting note. Like a same same level of weird chat as with Roger. So yeah, he was yeah. just trying to maybe trying to clear the the air or something. Yeah. He finished the meal and returned his tray. At this point, he put the bag on the table and pulled out his Colt AR-15 SP-1 carbine with a Colt scope and one thirty-round magazine attached. It was a. It's like a semi-automatic rifle, this one. Unloads quickly. Unloads quickly. And easily. Easy to reload. And easy to, like, fire a lot of a lo- rounds. Very quickly. You just, like, you just pull press it. it. Yeah. You don't have to, like... You don't have to cock it every time. Yeah. There we go. Our combined gun knowledge. <laughs> yeah. It's believed that the magazine was missing a number of shots, which were fired at Seascape. With, yeah. With Nolene and David. The cafe was small and was particularly busy at that time as people waited for the next ferry. Firstly, Martin aimed the rifle at the table beside him and fatally shot Mo Yi Ing and Su Ling Chung, who were visiting from Malaysia. He then fired at Mick's sergeant, who suffered an injury to his head, and fatally shot Mick's girlfriend, 21-year-old Kate Scott, in the back of the head. Next, Martin turned towards Joanne Winter and her 15-month-old son, Mitchell. From across the room, Joanne's husband, Jason, threw a serving tray at Martin in an attempt to distract him. While he looked away, Joanne's father pushed her and the baby to the floor and under a table. So, the family managed to survive this. 44-year-old Anthony Nightingale stood up after the first shots were fired and shouted, No, not here, as Martin aimed towards him. He leaned forward to move towards Martin, but was fatally shot through his neck and spine. Martin's next targets were a group of three men in their 60s. Kevin Sharp was killed in one shot, and Martin's second shot hit Walter Bennett, passed through his body, and struck Kevin's brother Raymond, killing them both. Which is, that is two shots, three deaths. Yeah. Yeah. Gerald Broom, Gay Fiddler, and her husband, John Fiddler, were all struck by bullet fragments, but survived. Martin then set his sights on another group of three, fatally shooting Andrew Mills in the head. Tony Kiston was fatally shot in the head as well, from two metres away, but not before he managed to push his wife, Sarah, away from the gunman, where she crawled under a table and avoided being seen. Four people were injured by fragments from these shots. I'll say something. So far, the men in this story are coming through. Yeah. You know what? They do in a lot of mass shootings. Do they? Yeah, like, you just hear of, like, it's definitely... An instinct. Really? Like, Interesting. Yeah, like in the the Batman cinema shooting. Okay. In like 2012, these boyfriends like pushing their girlfriends wow. under the like cinema seats. It's definitely a thing. I always hear them talking a big talk, but I just assume that it's like everything else they talk a big talk about. I honestly think in the moment they walk the big walk okay. for the most part. Like okay. true love exists, Riz. Wow. Four people were injured by fragments from these shots. Martin then took a few steps... So all of these shots prior had been fired from one spot. He hadn't moved, he just kind of turned. God. And took aim at a table where Graham Collier, Carolyn Lofton, and her daughter Sarah were seated. Graham was shot in the jaw, Sarah ran towards her mother, and Carolyn threw herself on top of her daughter to protect her and was shot in the back. The sound of the blast ruptured her eardrum. Despite her efforts, her daughter Sarah was still fatally shot in the head. Martin then turned around and shot Mervyn Howard. The bullet exited Mervyn's body, went through the cafe window, and lodged into a table outside. Mervyn's wife, Mary, was also fatally shot through the neck and the head. Martin was blocking the exit, preventing anyone from escaping as he moved towards the gift shop. On his way, he shot Robert Elliott through the arm and head, but Robert survived his injuries. From the first shot, all of these events took approximately 15 seconds, 
during which Bryant fired 17 shots, killed 12 people, and wounded 10 more. I guess the layout of the cafe is you've got the outdoor seating area out the front. You go into the cafe and the dining area is kind of to your left and goes back a bit. Kitchen is like at the back and the gift shop is on your right. There's an exit out the kitchen and there's the exit like the one you just came in from the main entry. I don't think there's an exit on the gift shop though, out of the gift shop. I think there might be, but I think it was locked. Okay. Yeah, so you couldn't go out there. But when he started shooting, he was at the at the very back of the cafe near yeah. the kitchen, yeah. which I guess that along with the layout does lend itself for um, a lot of damage. Like there's a lot of people in a small space, yeah. stuff like that. Um, but put a pin in that because that's a pretty big effort. It's definitely very accurate. It's very accurate. And a lot of them were headshots. Very quick, yeah. But yeah, that being said, a lot of them are from like two, three meters away. Yeah. Yeah. But keep it in mind. Mm. After hearing the shots in the main cafe area, most people in the gift shop had time to shelter under tables and behind displays. Two gift shop employees, 17-year-old Nicole Burgess and 26-year-old Elizabeth Howard, were fatally shot. Despite hiding behind a Hessian screen with other people, Dennis Lever was also fatally shot in the head. Pauline Masters, Ron Jerry and Peter and Carolyn Nash had made an attempted escape through a door, but when they found it was locked, Peter laid down on his wife to protect her from the gunman. While attempting to make a break for the same door, Gwen Neander was spotted by Martin and fatally shot in the head. Can we keep a good husband count? That's four. We are up to four. Damn. Martin saw movement back in the cafe and shot at a table, hitting Peter Crosswell in the buttock. Jason Winter, who earlier threw the tray at Martin to distract him, had been in the gift shop and thought that this shot in the cafe meant that Martin had left, and he made a comment to the people near him. Martin heard this and turned around towards Jason, who was heard saying no, no, before he was shot in the hand, neck, chest, and finally fatally shot in the head. Oh, Jason. This I is know. our original good husband. I know. He's the old, he's the, num- the first one. He, I know. Damn. Did he think that because the shot was close to the exit, the front door, yeah. that he was like gonna, like on his way out? I think so. Which is probably a fair assumption. <sighs> yeah, he, he did shoot across the whole thing, which he hadn't done before. Yeah. Fragments from the shots fired at Jason hit American tourist Dennis Olsen and his wife Mary, who suffered injuries but survived. At some point after this, Martin reloaded and walked back to the cafe and then back to the gift shop, where he fatally shot the group who had attempted to get out the door, Ron Jerry and Pauline Masters, and Peter Nash, who had been covering his wife Carolyn. Martin didn't see Carolyn lying under her husband and she survived. Sorry, that would be messed up. Hmm. You, I would never recover. You have to lay there and not make a single noise and your husband gets shot while he's laying on top of you. You know, I was watching a video about how to survive a mass shooting. Not that that's, you know, an issue anymore in Australia, but definitely still a big issue Mm -hmm. elsewhere. And one of the things was like, pretend to be dead. Yeah. Drag drag someone someone over you. (sighs) Maybe like protecting your wife and child, that would just become an instinct in the moment. Oh, yeah. I reckon I could do it. I think I could probably do it. I'd have to pick someone small. I'm not very strong. Yeah. I think it's just part of the, like, illusion mm. they don't have to like cover you i think it's just to like if you're the gunman you're scanning the room yeah roll in some blood yeah oh try God. not to move That's fucked mm. martin then aimed his weapon at an unidentified asian man but the magazine was empty <sighs> that is some god shit you're there staring down the barrel empty click <sighs> damn i'd be running for it after that yeah. See you God. later. Yeah. Martin then reloaded his weapon, leaving the empty magazine on the gift shop counter, and exited the building out into the car park. In the gift shop, he killed eight people and wounded two more. The death toll stood at 20 and injuries at 12. Out in the open of the car park, Martin's shots were still extremely accurate. A number of people had escaped out the kitchen door of the cafe and had raised the alarm outside where a number of people were hiding in buses or nearby buildings. Some people were confused or didn't know where to go. 
Others thought there was a historical reenactment going on and moved towards the gunfire. Martin missed his first shot at a site employee, Ashley Law, from 100 metres away. He then moved towards the buses, where he fatally shot bus driver Royce Thompson in the side. Martin moved around the buses, where he saw a number of people attempting to hide at the back end of one of the buses. He shot Bridget Cook in the right thigh, and bus driver Ian McElwee was hit by fragments of Bridget's bone. Both survived. Martin began shooting at another group, fatally shooting Winifred Applin in the side. Yvonne Lockley was hit in the side of the cheek, but survived. Sorry, that was just my reaction to being hit by fragments of bone. I know. That's fucked. Yeah, it must have really been a severe injury. What was the layer? Like, what was around this cafe? You know? A car park. Beyond car park. Was it, like, bush? Yeah. Yep. And there was also, like, water. Water. It was quite close to the water. There was a jetty, which we're about to get to. Mm, I'm just thinking, like... Would you just take off running? I think a lot of people just ran into the bush. Yeah, good call. So, yeah, people in the car park began moving away from the buses and down towards the jetty. But after someone shouted that Martin was heading towards the jetty, they doubled back to the buses. Of course, Martin wasn't heading towards the jetty and they walked straight into the line of fire. Martin opened fire at Janet Quinn and her husband Neville. Janet was shot in the back but not killed and Neville survived too, for now. For now. Martin shot one more person, Doug Hutchinson, in the arm before he went back to his car and changed to another semi-automatic rifle. He just got bored of the other one? Yeah, same gun. Same type of gun. He got out of the car and fired towards the penitentiary ruins where Denise Cromer was hiding. Gravel flew up as his bullets hit the ground, but Denise survived. He got back in the car, sat there for a few moments, and then went back to the area where the buses were. He fired at some people who had run into the bush adjacent to the car park, but missed. Martin then returned to where Janet Quinn was lying injured and fatally shot her again in the back. He then got onto one of the buses and fatally shot Alva Garland in the chest. From in the bus next door, Gordon Francis saw that Martin was getting on the buses and went to the front of his bus to try and shut the door. Martin saw him and fired at him from the opposite bus. Gordon survived but needed four major surgeries. Neville Quinn, who had survived earlier shots from Martin, had escaped to the jetty but returned to look for his wife Janet, who was now dead. Martin saw Neville and chased him about the buses, firing at him twice before Neville made it onto one of the buses. Martin followed him on, pointed the gun at Neville's face and said, No one gets away from me. Neville ducked as Martin pulled the trigger and was shot in the neck, momentarily paralyzing him. Neville somehow managed to survive this attack, which, goddamn, yeah, that's nearly like point blank. I know. <laughs> Martin began heading back towards his car and shot at James Belasco, a U.S. tourist who had been attempting to film the attack from his car. Go get out of there in a car. Drive. He was probably used to it. He's from the U.S. Yeah, you're right. In '96. Mm. Yeah, a bunch of shootings that happened already. Probably, to be honest. Yeah. The shot missed and ricocheted off a nearby car. In the car park, Martin killed six more people, making the death toll now 26 and the total injuries at 18. Martin got into his car and left the Port Arthur site. Witnesses reported that he was blaring his horn and waving out the window as he drove away. He went along Jetty Road towards the toll booth, which was probably to get into the car park. Like paid parking. Yeah, but they just it wasn't automated probably at that point. So you still had to have the booth, you know? Yeah. Now it would just be a boom gate. Oh... Was it a booth and a boom gate? Probably, yeah. Can you imagine? He's like, there. he talked to the, yeah. the booth man, and then yeah. he's got to wait for the thing to go up. Maybe the booth man just put it up. Maybe. Like, just get, just get, get out. out. Yeah. Near this toll booth was where Nanette McCack had been running with her two children, three-year-old Madeline and six-year-old Alana. Nanette was carrying Madeline, and Alana was running slightly ahead of her. They had run approximately 600 metres from the car park, before Martin pulled up beside them. Which, 600 metres, is a fair distance to run. With a baby and for a six-year-old to run, that's pretty yeah. far. Yeah. Adrenaline. Nanette thought that the car was stopping to help her, so she moved towards the car. Martin got out and told Nanette to get on her knees. He then fatally shot her in the temple and killed both Madeline and Alana. Martin got back into his car and drove to the toll booth where he blocked a BMW being driven by Russell Pollard. 
Mary Nixon and Robert and Helena Salzman were inside as passengers. Robert began to argue with Martin and was shot, fatally shot. Russell got out of the car and was also fatally shot as he moved towards Martin. He then shot Mary and Helena inside the car and dragged them out of the vehicle. I'll give Robert and Russell good husbands number five and six. Yeah. Have we missed any good husbands up to now? Oh, Neville. Neville Neville five. Russell and Robert six and seven. Oh my God. He put his ammunition, a set of handcuffs, the semi-automatic carbine rifle and a rule container into the BMW. Another car pulled up to the toll booth, but quickly backed up after Martin shot at it. He got into the BMW, leaving his Volvo at the toll booth, along with the shotgun and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. At this point, the death toll stood at 33 and injuries at 19. Martin drove to a nearby service station and cut off a car that was pulling onto the highway. In this car was Glenn Pierce and his girlfriend Zoe Hall. Martin got out of the car and attempted to pull Zoe out of the passenger seat, but Glenn got out and approached Martin, who turned around and pointed the gun at Glenn. Glenn, good husband, eight? I've lost count. I'm actually... All these men in this story... Except Martin. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. Not Martin. Not Martin, but everyone else. Not to be too heteronormative, you know, but they're coming up, they're coming through. Yeah, truly. Martin pushed Glenn backwards and into the boot of the BMW, locking him inside. Zoe was trying to climb into the driver's seat of the car when Martin returned and fired three shots into the car, killing her. People inside the service station witnessed this, and the attendant told everyone to lie down and he locked the doors. The attendant grabbed his rifle, but by the time he loaded it, Martin had driven away in the BMW. The police arrived soon after and went in pursuit. After leaving the service station, with Glenn in the boot of the car, Martin headed back to Seascape, where it all began. Once he arrived, he got out of the car and shot at two vehicles which drove past, smashing their windscreens and windows and injuring at least one person. A third vehicle drove down the road, carrying four passengers. They saw Martin on the side of the road, but didn't realise he had a gun until they were alongside him. He shot at the car and smashed the windscreen, which wounded the driver, Douglas Horner. Douglas kept driving to where the people from the first two cars were, and when he realised they were injured, picked them up and continued onto a pub in town called the Fox and Hound. Martin shot at one more car, injuring the driver and passenger, before getting into the BMW and continuing down the driveway of the Seascape property. This is true, like, mass shooting energy. He didn't need to stop and do that. No. He just was like, oh, we'll get out and keep doing that a bit and then get back in. And Yeah, and at this point he's been going for so long that it would almost maybe, like, the feeling would have worn off a bit. Yeah. he would. It probably wouldn't really feel like anything anymore. He's just like, this is what I'm doing, shooting people. Yeah. Once back at the house, he got Glenn out of the boot and handcuffed him to a railing within the house where he had left the bodies of Nolene and David Martin. He then set the BMW on fire. It's estimated that he arrived at Seascape around 2pm, just 50 minutes after he stepped into the Broad Arrow Cafe at Port Arthur. At this point, 34 people had been killed. Soon after Martin took his hostage into the Seascape house, police arrived at the scene. They began negotiations with Martin, whose only demand was to be transported via army helicopter to the airport. Negotiations continued until the battery ran out of the phone that Martin was using and ended communication. Sounds like your phone, Helen. They just had your phone in there. Also, this negotiation sucks. Like his demand? Yeah. Yeah, what was his plan after that? (laughs) What the fuck? Take me to the airport. Yeah. Let me run off to Estonia. Ecuador, whatever. Yeah, let me buy a a plane ticket and board a plane. With my rifle. Yeah. Martin stayed in the Seascape house for around 18 hours until a fire started on the morning of the 29th of April. Police presume this was lit by Martin in an attempt to escape among the confusion. He taunted police, telling them to come and get him. However, as they believed he had already killed the hostage during the negotiations, they figured that the fire would bring him out. Huge call, because what if he hadn't killed Glenn? But it didn't matter. Didn't matter because the police were correct, and the fire did bring Martin out of the house. He ran out with his clothes on fire. 
he was arrested and taken to hospital for treatment for the burns on his back and buttocks. When they searched the burnt-out house, they discovered that Glenn had indeed been killed at some point during or after the negotiations. They also found the remains of Nolene and David Martin, which revealed that while Nolene was shot, she also suffered blunt force trauma. They found a weapon in the house and another on the roof of an adjacent building, where they thought they'd saw Martin the night before. Once arrested, Martin was kept in hospital under heavy police guard. According to one police guard, at least two people applied to become guards at the time, who were found to be seeking revenge against Martin. Man, pretty intensive interview screening. Yeah. To deduce that. Maybe they just had, like, no qualifications. Yeah. And they were like, what? What made you apply the day after a mass What made you interested in this role? Yeah, that's true. When he was initially interviewed by police, he gave false accounts of all the aspects of the event, which made police wonder whether he was lying or whether he was mentally incapable of recalling the events accurately. This, along with his previous mental health history, made it questionable whether he was fit to stand trial at all. But it was later determined that he was, and his trial was scheduled to begin on the 7th of November. Martin's lawyer, John Avery, faced with a mountain of evidence against his client, eventually persuaded Martin to change his plea to guilty and prevent a trial. At a hearing on the 19th of November 1996, Martin pled guilty to 35 counts of murder, 20 counts of attempted murder, 3 counts of grievous bodily harm, 8 woundings, 4 aggravated assaults, and 1 arson charge. Should be 2, he lit the car on fire. Yeah, you're right. Maybe that was... uh, It probably doesn't compare. I think there was also uh, some property damage charges. But they're just not that important. Yeah, fair enough. Three days later, he was sentenced to 35 life sentences, plus 1,652 years in prison, without the possibility for parole. Damn, Helen. Don't do this to me. This man is serving hard. Uh, 1,652 years in prison is about 20 life sentences. Okay, yeah. If Okay, but that's if we think the life sentence is, is 80 years. He's like, if you are if you get it when you're born and it's your natural life. Okay, so he's like 30, so he's got like 50 years left. Yeah. So actually, it's like 30 years in prison. 30 more. lives. 30 lives. 30 lives. Sorry, yeah, 30 lives in prison. Plus these... Plus 35. Plus 35 more lives, so 65 lives. Why did they bother with the 1,652? You know, people ask this all the time with <laughs> these unique, like, sentences. But it's just the letter of the law, babe. I don't know what to tell you. You, It's just a formality. You've just got to do it. And and because maybe it counts somewhere, huh? Oh, the big man. The big man upstairs. <laughs> On Judgment Day... <laughs> He's like, he's like, adjusts his glasses. Like, I see you've got sixty-five life sentences. <laughs> he's like, I, you still have sixteen hundred years to do. Plus, yeah, yeah, six. <laughs> yeah. They must have. It's fine. Yeah, it's just a formality. Guess he's serving. And it really it does make a statement, doesn't it? Yeah, sixty-five times is hard. Yeah, I still think they should implement that. That'd be very dicey. Yeah, that's one of your dicier policies <laughs> in the court of helen you serve 65 times as hard along with inventing inventing the ai who manages your finances i would also invent a, the time loop okay. or like if you are ser- if you are sentenced 65 times as hard your days become oh they feel like really long a thousand hours long damn you better not mess up in my court that would suck i'm scared <laughs> anyway a bit of a detour these get me every time though Whenever there's more than like twenty life sentences, I'm like, what? Is... Yeah, what's everyone the point? met the same end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, it, actually, after one life sentence, yeah. everyone meets the same. Doesn't end. matter, but yeah, yeah. The energy's there. He did a really bad thing. That's what. Yeah, that's the point. The energy. For eight months after he was imprisoned, he was held in a suicide prevention cell, which was basically solitary confinement. After this, he remained in protective custody, which means custody for his own good kind of thing yeah. like against his own harm and harm from other prisoners as you can imagine right i mean is that that much different from su- a suicide prevention cell you know i think he gets a, a few more i think a suicide prevention cell is basically like a padded cell right but right protective custody is like you get a few more freedoms yeah until he was moved to the wilfred lopes center in 2006 
a small mental health unit for inmates with serious mental illnesses. Despite this greater level of health care, Martin's mental health continued to decline. He attempted suicide twice in March 2007, once by slashing his wrist with a razor blade, and two days later by cutting his throat with a razor blade. How was he getting razor blades in this... Wilfred Lopes? Mental health unit. I don't know. He was briefly hospitalized after this. In 2015, he was moved to Risden Prison, and as of 2020, currently remains there. He is how old now? 50? Um, he was born the same year as my mum. Yeah, how old's your mum? Just asking my mum. Hey, mum. Um, she'll be 54 this year. Not even that old. Yeah. I mean, she'll be 40 this year. She'll be... She'll be 21. (laughs) At the time of the attack, ownership of guns in Australia was largely unrestricted, including semi-automatic rifles. The nationwide shock in the aftermath of the attack prompted the federal government at the time, led by Prime Minister John Howard, to restrict the availability of firearms. Some states, particularly Tasmania and Queensland, were opposed to such restriction, and the proposal by the government created rifts within their own party, as fringe groups on either ideological side of the coalition spoke out against government handling and the potential exploitation of the massacre to obtain voter support for laws which may not have had support at another time. How can you exploit a mass shooting? You know, I think like many bad things that happen, it's if you do something about it, you're exploiting the situation. If you don't, you're avoiding it. Like, for example, after the bushfires last year mm. here in Australia, our prime minister didn't really do anything about it. And they were it was kind of this thing. And everyone was like, obviously, this is climate change. Like, look how bad these fires are. Um, whatever, and very quickly, like in the aftermath, he was like, "Now's not the time. We need to band behind the communities. Now's not the time to talk about climate change." And this was the opposite of that, where they were like, "Okay, we're going to do something about it." Right. And people saw it as like, "Oh, you're taking advantage of all these people that have died. You're it's insensitive for your political motivations. Like you're taking advantage of this situation." Right. Yeah. I guess I get that in theory, but yeah. IMO. That concept does not exist. No. Like, something happens, we gotta do something about you it. We gotta do something. Why do you have a political party? Yeah. And we gotta do nothing about it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, I think that was, that's often the sentiment. <laughs> cool. Great. Yeah. Also, why the hell, it, Tasmania? Yeah, it happened there, bro. It just happened there. And they're like, how dare you? Yeah. I, look, I think Tasmania and Queensland had a lot of farms and farmers do like they need guns yeah they don't need semi-automatic rifles no probably not probably yeah, not probably they not. can probably just use a normal rifle but yeah. i think maybe they they were they felt threatened and they were like no i need this for my property and so they kind of panicked a bit and also they're very conservative and they mm. don't think any of our rights should be taken away <laughs> The fast actions of the federal government in coordinating the new laws and the amnesty have prompted some people to ask the question, was this an inside job? Did the government have this ready to go, and all they needed was a horrific catalyst in order to gain the appropriate supporting votes? In my opinion, no. But go on. Yeah, I'm not sure about like the validity of all of this these claims. But when I mentioned to my housemate Joe that I was researching the Port Arthur massacre, literally the first thing out of his mouth was, oh, so was it an inside job? So I was like, um... (laughs) That's a good impression. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I thought it would only be appropriate to at least include it. Fine. Joe gets a lot of shout-outs on here. (laughs) He's moving out, you guys, so you'll stop hearing about him. (laughs) Nah, he'll still find a way to make comments. Yeah, he bloody will. This conspiracy, I guess, is mainly strengthened by the speed and accuracy at which Martin carried out the massacre. People have said that with his alleged shooting ability and mental capacity, there's no way that he would have been able to be as destructive as he was. Therefore, some people suppose that he was an inside agent and the whack backstory was all fake and the incident was fabricated, and he isn't being held in a prison at all. In 2019, this conspiracy surfaced once again when a video of One Nation party leader Pauline Hansen was released by Al Jazeera, which showed her talking about the massacre. If you don't live here, Pauline is a bit... She's not the most reliable source, probably. She's a bit... 
bit much. Much. She likes a stunt. She likes a bit of shock value. <laughs> yeah. Even I know that. In the video, which was secretly filmed, she said, quote, An MP said it would actually take a massacre in Tasmania to change the gun laws in Australia. Haven't you heard that? Have a look at it. It was said on the floor of Parliament. Those shots, they were precision shots. Check the number out. I've read a lot and I have read the book on it, Port Arthur. A lot of questions there. A lot of questions there. Yeah, I wasn't going to try it. (laughs) A lot of questions there. She was backed up by her chief of staff, James Ashby, who piped up with a comment about that whole September 11 thing, quote. Just that that old thing. Yeah, that thing. Seemingly linking the two conspiracy theories. After the video came out, Pauline held a press conference in which she made an official statement that she stuck by comments made by her party in 2001, which were that they didn't support the conspiracy and that she believed Martin was solely responsible and deserved the death penalty for his actions. I'm calling bullshit on this conspiracy theory. Yeah? Especially the part where they're like, oh, he was so accurate. He was in a cafe. Yeah. Everyone was like three metres from him. Yeah. And even if he was, like, even if he had low IQ, doesn't mean he can't shoot straight. I feel like those two things aren't correlated. Yeah. In fact... I've seen some 11-year-olds shoot. Yeah. You know what I mean? They can still shoot. Be very accurate. Yeah. other sports. Yeah. I feel like that stuff is unrelated. Maybe, yeah. Your ability to focus on a target. I did find, right before we recorded, I found one of those, like, do you remember now... Harold Holt episode, how that was that like deep web HTML page about the Harold Holt conspiracy. I found another one of those right before we came to record. Mm. And look, I've skimmed it and I don't think I would give it much time. But I mean, credit where it's due. They did have a couple of good points on there. They had a couple and they had a couple of pictures to back it up. So yeah. Do I think it was a government cover-up? No. Do I think 9-11 was a government cover-up? No. But will I entertain it? Sure. Yeah, me too. Although, it's a bit of a dodgy government job to plan this in a tourist destination. Like, to change Australian law. Why would you right. do that with Americans, Malaysians, like other, like, or Japanese, like mm. whoever else was there to visit? You know? Maybe that was part of it. Do you reckon? I feel like nah, that would just create more horrible, problem than it's worth. Like international, international relations. relations. Yeah. Or maybe international pressure. International to your... support. Oh. Ooh. Yeah, nah. Nah. And you know what? It's probably a no from me. Think of it what you will. Probably a no from us. Yeah. But it's fun to lean in every now and again. Yeah. Finally, under federal coordination, All states and territories passed laws which restricted the ownership of firearms and imposed further license requirements on recreational shooters. So the main kind of issue that the Commonwealth government faced was that um, licensing and gun registration were all state powers, like for the majority, which is a constitutional quirk of our federation. So they had to kind of get everyone on board and be like, please do this. And right. we'll help you. Right. Yeah. Who? The federal coordinate. The, the Commonwealth government. Stop this. Okay. Stop this mania. Okay. Your people and your states. Our federation. <sighs> I'm honestly waiting for the day we become seven little countries again. <laughs> Time can only tell. Yeah. And after the whole coronavirus. You mean you're girl. not seven little countries? I'm making a couple <laughs> dicey comments today. Scott Morrison, she's looking I'm at you. I'm going to get deported tomorrow. <laughs> You're going to kick me out. This included the infamous gun amnesty, a buyback scheme which resulted in 643,000 guns being purchased by the government at a cost of $350 million. These weapons, comprising approximately one-third of all firearms in circulation at the time, were all destroyed. Damn. Yeah. Couldn't they have been recycled? Maybe they did. Or resell? No, I've seen pictures. They literally just crushed them. $350 $350 million. Yeah. There's the tax. We raised the Medicare levy that year, which made $550 million of federal income, which wow. allowed them to pay for this. Ah. Oh. There you go. As I said, there goes the tax. Yeah, the tax. <laughs> it always comes. <laughs> so we have to pay in the end. Yeah. The government paid for That's it. That's capitalism, girl. 
<laughs> right. Currently, in order to own a firearm in Australia, you must hold a licence. And to get a licence, you must have a genuine reason for needing one. You cannot obtain a licence if you are a prohibited person, and any firearms purchased under the licence are registered to the person using the serial number on the weapon. To jump back for one sec. A genuine reason is not protection doesn't count. Self-protection doesn't count as a genuine reason. Yeah. These laws are always being refined, and in 2015, New South Wales introduced laws which ban the possession of digital blueprints which can be used to 3D print a gun unless the person has an appropriate license. How strange. We are truly in the future. (laughs) 3D printing. You can't even, like, it's not like you can't have a 3D printed gun. You can't have the template. Yeah. You can't have the file that loads onto the printer. You'd think that, like, you'd be able to make it. How hard is it to to like a, make a file? Create a gun template, like yeah, it's not but a it, but then if you get found with one, right, not right, allowed. Right, right, right. Whether you make it yourself or or buy it or it's whatever, illegal to do. You so. can't be in possession of it. Yeah, which is I often think about things like this. Like, what if someone just emailed it to me, and then I have it. I know they're like delete it and tell the police. But what if I? What if you don't check your spam? I don't. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Look, look. I don't know. Well, it's okay. You don't have a 3D printer. I don't have a 3D printer and I don't have this template. <laughs> I, swear. I don't know. Check your spouse. <laughs> Would you have to 3D print bullets as well? Oh, good question. What about a... No, I think you just buy them. What about a fancy gun strap? Could you 3D print one? I don't Maybe. Case. Maybe. wonder if that's allowed. <laughs> to have the blueprint for New the New South case. Wales, we want answers. <laughs> Australia is often used as an international example of how gun control can reduce the amount of fatalities as a result of gun violence. There hasn't been a random mass shooting since Port Arthur. We've had some small random shootings where like two to four people might have been killed. But yeah. I was surprised at this. I feel like Australia... We're not an example of anything. It's not often an international example. Maybe of bad things. (laughs) I was like, wow. But look at us. Fantastic. I know. Great. We're surprising everyone. Well. This Bluetooth <laughs> and the cochlear implant I, is our pride <laughs> and joy. I have to say, though, it was really the horrible management of mental health issues in Tasmania that Whoa. led to this moment. You're right. And maybe they should have focused on that. A bit earlier. Yeah. And no excuses. It's the 90s. Mm. You know? Close enough mm. to, like... Heading towards better directions of mental health care. Mm-hmm. If we're talking like 80s, 70s, 60s. But 90s is a bit like, we're, we're trying to. Yeah, make I guess it, it probably wasn't. Looking like, in that direction. It probably wasn't mainstream. But yeah, yeah you're right. If, we, if we'd only turned our eye there sooner, yeah. maybe this wouldn't have happened. But Martin has said in like interviews after he was convicted, he has said, like, if I couldn't get a gun, I never would have done it, mm. which obviously, but he's like, it was just so easy for me to go and buy one. And that's mm. why I did it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Fair he enough. also did it because he was mentally unwell. Yeah. 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 But I guess impressive enough to turn the laws, um, given your great divide of the nation. <laughs> yeah. The states. Um, this was the last time we bound together in such a way. That was the last time we talked to each other. Yeah. We don't talk anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Yeah. Australia, like, without this event and these laws and currently, kind of does strike me as a gun country. There are, like, a lot of people have guns. Y'all have given me the energy. Yeah. Because we have a lot of people that live on properties. Mm. And you can, like, you should be able to, like, shoot things on your property. Yeah, right. Maybe that's just because I'm from a rural background. But, like, if you've, like, if there's, like, rabbits, that's a pest. Foxes, pest. Kangaroos, pest. Hmm. Um, like you should be able to, if they're going to get into your crops or like attack your livestock, you should be able to like pest control your property. Mm. It's the same as like, I mean, it's not, obviously I understand that is huge differences, but it's the same as like squashing a cockroach, you know, the cockroach is going to come in and eat eat the bread on the kitchen table. So we've got to squash it. The rabbit's going to come in and eat all the, all the grain. So got to get rid of it. And I know there's difference. I'm a vegetarian. But you got to grow the crops. But you got to... There's things that need to be done. Yeah. Fair enough. So, yeah. While I obviously support gun control, I also support measured gun control. Can't just take every single gun away. And that's the Queenslander in you. Yeah, God. That sounded like <laughs> something Bob Catter would say. 
Oh. You guys get what I mean. Yeah, no, I get you. Yeah. Obviously, like, we shouldn't... You can't... No one should be going around with a submachine gun. No one needs one of those. But you probably should be able to have a rifle on your farm. Literally, what was the reasoning for anyone being able to obtain one of those? I have no clue. Who thought, like, yeah, let's put this on the market? I don't... Even in, like, America, I have no idea. Hunting? You still don't Hunting need what? that. Yeah. Like, I have no idea. Like a flock of ducks and you just want to hit as many as you can. Awesome. I have no idea. You don't need that many ducks. Or some people are like, it's just fun, like recreation. And sure, it is fun, maybe. At a shooting range or whatever. Yeah, okay. Keep it at the keep shooting it range. At the, keep it at the range. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe Biden will do something about it. I doubt it. It's so ingrained over there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anyway. Well. That's it then from us for with mass shootings. Oh, yeah. we could do the Christchurch one in New Zealand in time. In, in time. In a second. We'll Still, give it a minute. We'll give it a minute to cool off. But inter- yeah, I guess um, Australia and New Zealand, it's just kind of like a like one each in a sense. Yeah, and like you had huge gun reforms after Christchurch as well. So Because we were following your glowing example. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know. We were really big brother in the moment there. And we said, come under our wing. Look at how we did it. Yeah. Well. Until then. Good hustle, Riz. Thank you. This was a long one. A lot of people. A lot of people. A lot of things going on. And even then, I left a lot of things out. Well, you got to. I mean, it's we're nearly at two hours. Yeah. But I liked the fun backstory. I know it wasn't fun. But I liked the whole... I liked the whole backstory with Helen and the like lottery and the mansion and the farm. Yeah. Like, what a crazy, like, somewhat of an upbringing, like, his young adulthood spent mm. in that environment. That would have been crazy. Yeah. And he had already, like, he was shooting the air gun at those tourists before the Dunblane shooting. Yeah. It's already happening. Mm-hmm. Apparently they're going to make a movie about it this year. Mm. Or they're releasing a movie about it this year. We'll let you guys know when it comes out. Maybe mm. we'll go see it. We'll do a little excursion. And we we'll do a review. Out. Yeah, <laughs> we can turn into a movie review podcast. <laughs> This was the last true crime case they did. Special episode. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, there's that for your history lesson. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your day, whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. As usual, we'll see you next week, whether you, you like it or not. <laughs> Bye. Bye.